Well, Merry Christmas. Can we say it now? Past Thanksgiving, Christmas season is upon us. It is hard to believe it is already here. Before we get in the message, I want to remind you where we're going on Wednesday nights coming up in December. We're doing a thing called the Carols of Christmas, December 7th, 14, and 21, three Wednesday nights during adult Bible study time. And each week we're going to look at one of your, or at least one of the people's favorite Christmas carols. Not only sing it, but have a chance to talk about the, the meaning, the history, the context of where it came from. But the theology where we see from God's word what we're singing. My hope is that out of this, at least for three carols that we're pretty familiar with, because I can sing Christmas songs and not think about them much, it'll give us some fresh eyes on some of the wonders of what we're celebrating this season. So I just want to invite you back for that on December 7th, 14th, and 21st, 21st on Wednesday evenings. Well, Christmas season is upon us. Family plans are already coming together, right? We have trips being discussed, work parties, Christmas breaks, all sorts of things are already in the works. Decorations are going up. You look around, Christmas seems to be everywhere, and for some of you, you get tired at the thought of that, because there's a lot to be done. It becomes a busy, a hectic season, and it seems a little bit ironic that a season that's supposed to be about hope and peace and joy and love becomes a season of craziness, of stress, of hectic schedules, of amassing more debts, and all those things that often happen at Christmas, when it's really a season of hope, of peace of love and joy. And so one thing the church does to help us be ready for the season, the season called Advent. Advent is four Sundays to help us be ready for Christmas. And that is what we're beginning today. It's a time to get ready for the sacred season, to focus our attention on hope and peace and love and joy. Well, not all churches celebrate Advent. Not all Christian traditions celebrate it. But it's been a market of at least some parts of Christianity for a long, long time. What is Advent? Because obviously we're doing that. It starts today with hope, and next Sunday on peace, and then joy, and then love. What is Advent? It's literally four Sundays before Christmas, not counting Christmas if it's on a Sunday. And the word Advent literally means coming. It's a time for the church to celebrate the coming of Christ. So there's several things that go into this celebrating the coming. There's a looking back. We're remembering God's people in the Old Testament times and their longings for a Messiah. Their longings for the promised one who would come and bring hope, peace, joy, and love. So the chance for us to reflect back on that. But as one's now on this side of history, Advent is a time for us to celebrate what Christ has done. The coming of Emmanuel, God with us, and how he brings to us hope, peace, joy, and love. But Advent is also not just his coming that's already happened. It's the time for the church to think ahead about his second coming. Because when you look at the world, it's obviously not completely full of hope, peace, joy, and love, is it? Turn on the news and see that, and that may add to our stress levels at Christmas sometimes. But the day is coming when Christ returns, and he makes all things right. And the creation is restored and is no longer groaning. And so Advent is a time for us to look forward to when Christ comes again, not as a baby, but comes as a ruling, reigning King. It's a time for us to anticipate that and to long for that, even as we reflect back on his first coming. So that's what Advent is, if you're not familiar with it, and that's what we celebrate starting today. So today we begin with the first week of Advent. The merchants have already lit the Advent candle for us on this first Sunday, and it's the theme of hope. Even if you look on your bulletin cover, it says that hope was born. And that's what we're thinking about this morning, hope. So think for just a minute. When in your life have you most needed hope? When in your life have you most needed hope? How about in the lives of your friends? When did your friends most need hope in their lives? Got at least some idea in your mind of what that might be? 
So the follow-up question is, what satisfied that hope? When was that longing for hope? How was that longing satisfied? How was that longing, that hope, actually fulfilled in their lives or in your lives? I mean, there's lots of ways this can go, but perhaps if you think about it, your, your car breaks down late at night on the side of a road and you're alone. You pick up the phone, you call a friend, a mechanic, roadside assistance, the police, whatever. And the dispatcher says, hey, we're on our way. Well, there's hope now, right? There's some degree of hope. Okay, I'm not alone. Help is coming. But that hope is not fully realized yet. You have hope, but the hope is not full until you see the blue lights of the police car behind you or you see the tow truck behind you or you see your friend pull them and then your your hope is satisfied your hope is fulfilled at that point in the presence of that person who you were longing for to come and then months later you look back and you tell your friends of god's faithfulness to protect you through that and you're thankful for the hope you had in the waiting we knew that help was on the way but even more thankful for the hope when it was satisfied when the person came i know here at gateway we have a number of military families Perhaps that, that longing for hope appears when your child who's in the military, your spouse who's in the military, has been away at war for a while. And you finally get that word, they're coming home in four weeks. There's a hope in your heart related to their coming that you're longing for. You have hope that they'll be back. But that hope, though it grows, is not satisfied, is not fulfilled until they actually show up and get off that plane and you see them. And only then is the hope satisfied in their presence. And then you look back with thankfulness in the months to come and you, thought, and you think about that hope that got you through that waiting period, but how that hope was really only fully realized when they, when they arrived. Or perhaps if you think back, for those of you married to, to your wedding day, you think back to when you first met the person, like, oh, I think she's the one. There's that hope that begins to build in your heart. You get engaged, you put the ring on the finger, she says yes, and there's a growing hope. Oh my goodness, this is actually going to work out. And then, though you have hope through all that, that hope is not really satisfied. The hope is not fulfilled. And so you stand there at the altar with the past right there, and you say, I do, and you enter a covenantal relationship. And the hope is satisfied then in the presence of the other person. And you look back in the years to come, and you realize you had hope through that whole season. But the hope was really only fully satisfied with the coming of the other person. And in all those, there's a common theme that, that hope is not just some subjective feeling. Yeah, I mean, we use hope in a lot of ways. I hope we may win a football game or who wins an election or who does something else. But in most of the times we really, really need hope, hope is tied to the presence of another person. Whereas the spouse of the child coming home, the person you've longed to get married to, help from a friend or an officer in a time of need, is tied to the presence of another person. That hope is only fully satisfied when the other person actually shows up. And that's the hope that we have in view today. And so if we need hope when the car breaks down, when a child or a spouse is away at war, when we're hoping to get married, how much more so do we need hope in the presence of God himself with us? And that's what we are thinking about as we begin Advent. And if we're going to think about the, the need for hope, then we must be thinking about Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so this morning I want us to take an approach where I want us to see how the message of hope is not just tied to Christmas. That's really the message of the whole Bible. And so we're going to look at a number of different passages this morning as we try to answer a key question. Here's the question for today. It's why is there such a longing for the hope of God's presence during the Christmas season? So think about hope today. Why is there such a longing for the hope of God's presence during the Christmas season? Because if something happens at Christmas time to where people who've never stepped foot in the doors of the church in the last whole months show back up, Right? There's something that happens at Christmas time that in the midst of all the craziness, there's this longing inside us of hope 
to know God? Why is there such a longing for the hope of God's presence at Christmas time? And I want to see kind of four ideas related to this, because this is the ideas of all of Scripture today. And here's what I want us to see this morning. One big idea from Scripture, but is this, we long for hope. One, because we were made for it. Second of all, and I think it's on the screen, Taylor, if you have that next slide up there, the four reasons of why we long for hope. First, we were made for it. Second, we know we lost it in the fall. Third, through the coming of Emmanuel, we can have it in part. But when, he, when Christ comes back a second time, we will have it in full. So let's kind of unpack this idea throughout Scripture of hope and why we long for it at Christmas. We long for hope because we were made for it. Because we know we lost it in the fall. But through the coming of Emmanuel, what we celebrate at Christmas, we can have that hope back in part. But when Christ returns, we will have it in full. So let's think about that. We're going to work through all four of this. So first of all, we were made for it. Let's think about that for just a minute. So we're not going to look at, a lot, at every passage we could look at, obviously. But I want us to think back, think back big picture now. Review Sunday School from Genesis 1 and 2. Here's a chance to talk back. When, when God made people and God made creation, was God distant or was God very present? Very present. God's presence was right there in the midst of it. He was very intimately involved in the whole creation process. Now think back again. First, you got the first answer right. Think back to God making mankind. God had made everything in creation that was good. God makes people, and it wasn't just good, it was what? It was very good because there's something different about mankind. Mankind, man and women, we were made in what? In God's image. Yeah, we were made in God's image. We are a, a small reflection of who God is. We're going to talk a lot more about that this spring on Wednesday nights when we get into the attributes and the nature of God. And we're going to have a lot of fun on that one. So, yeah, so we were made in his image. But now I'll jump ahead to Genesis 3. Next big picture question from the beginning of the Bible. Think about something. When Adam and Eve sinned and when, and when the fall happened, Adam and Eve heard something after they had fallen that struck fear in their hearts. What, who did they hear in the garden that terrified them? They heard God. They heard God, and God did two things. God spoke to them, but also said God was doing what in the garden? Do you remember? He was walking in the garden. So when they fell, when they sinned, they, they felt fear for the first time. When they heard God walking in the garden and calling to them. I think too often we think of God walking in the garden as some type of reactionary thing to the fall. That's what God did every day with them. Every day, God walked in the garden with them. God talked to them. He called out to them. They could converse with God. And so, friends, that is what the world was made to be like. And there's a longing, I believe, in all of our hearts to be back to that. I mean, can you imagine just going for a walk with God? Just talking to God about what you're saying. Hey, what do you want to call that animal? Yeah, I mean, it's just this back and forth interchange as they were literally in God's presence, unhindered, nothing in the way of that. We were made friends for that, and there was a very legitimate longing in our hearts for that experience. We were made for it. But something went wrong, and again, at Christmas time, we know we want to have hope of God's presence because we were made for it. But second of all, we long for it because we know we lost it in the fall. There's a reason today that I just can't go for a walk and have God walking alongside me, talking that same way that Adam and Eve experienced. Yes, we can talk to God in prayer. I don't want to minimize that, but the type of communication that Adam and Eve had walking in the garden with God, we know we're lacking. Why? Because we lost it in the fall. We don't live in the garden anymore. Again, we turn on the news at Christmas time and we see that pretty clearly, right? So turn to Genesis chapter 3. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. It'll be the first of several texts I want us to look at this morning. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 8. And we're just going to look at a number of things this morning. So Genesis chapter 3, 
Let me start reading in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Verse 10. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He, God, said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And then jump down to verse 22. Verse 22, chapter 3 still of Genesis. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so we just saw that they felt fear for the first time. And this is so interesting because God's presence had brought them joy pre-fall. And now God's presence brings them fear because there's sin. There's fear now in God's presence that used to bring them joy. But God also banished them from the garden. We don't have time to unpack it fully this morning, but I'm not saying that God is not with them. The fact they're driven from the garden doesn't mean that God is not with them. God still is. We'll talk more about that in the attributes of God this spring. Nor am I saying that there's a place you can go to escape God's presence. Because it's very clear on that. Again, God is present everywhere. We're going to talk about that more this spring also. But when we're talking about, about God's presence in us losing it in the fall, we're talking about God's relational presence. We know that God is everywhere. We're talking about his relational presence. By that means God's, God's presence to bless, to love, to shepherd, to direct, to be involved in the lives of his people. That's kind of what we're speaking of in God's presence. We were made for that type of God's presence. We can't get away from God's presence. Everywhere we go, God is there. But his relational presence to bless, to love, to shepherd, to care for and then our response out of loving and obeying and worshiping him, that is what gets lost in the fall. And thus begins the whole pattern of the Old Testament, does it not? God, God calls his people to repent, to believe. They do. They experience his presence. He guides them. He cares for them. He provides for their needs in supernatural ways. And they turn from him. And they disobey and they sin. And so God turns from them. He disciplines them in his love to bring them back. And they live in the season of rebellion for a while. But eventually they have enough and they come back to God. And it goes back and forth and back and forth throughout the rest of the Old Testament. God offers to dwell with his people, but he requires obedience. But they cannot. And so you have this back and forth. So go over a few books of the book of Leviticus. It'll also be on the screen if you'd like to just follow along on the screen instead. Leviticus chapter 26. And I want you to see the effects of the fall and how it affects our ability to understand God's presence. Leviticus chapter 26. We're going to start in verse 11. Leviticus 26 verse 11. This is God speaking. I will make my dwelling among you. And my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you. Here's a flashback to the garden, right? Verse 12. I will walk among you and will be your God. You shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. Verse 14. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments and break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow the seed in vain for enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down. Before your enemies, those who hate you shall rule over you and you who sh- and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. 
What a contrast, right? God's relational presence to bless at this stage in history is really conditional. God's relational presence for them is conditional on their obedience. And friends, there is no hope in that. Because we see in Israel's history that they are unable to obey God. And friends, if you see in your own life like I do in mine, we are unable in our own strength to obey God. There is no hope in trying to fulfill the law to earn God's presence. But that's ultimately what the law was designed to do. It's to show us our own inadequacies and our absolute need of Him. And what can give us hope? You know, if this is all we have, that's pretty hopeless, right? Well, go over to the book of Jeremiah. Or again, follow along on the screen if you prefer. Go over to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. What changes then? Because something's got to give. Because if, if we're only left with what I just read in Leviticus, you and I have no hope of God's presence. But something changes. Something has to give. And we begin to get a glimpse of that because it's going to change with Christmas, obviously. But we begin to get a foretaste of what God's going to do different. What this Christmas season is all about in Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. So notice this has not yet happened. Jeremiah is telling us what's going to happen. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Friends, there's hope coming, isn't there? The hope that the law could not bring, God has now turned them that hope is coming. He's giving them a covenant that man cannot break. A covenant so, that's going to be so different that we no longer have to pray like David. And I don't know if you've thought about this before, but if you go into Psalm 51, David prays something that thankfully you and I will never have to pray. He says, yeah, he says, cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. If you're starting to consider, friends, that we don't have to ever pray that, God, do not take your presence from me. Cast me not away from your presence, God. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Why do we not have to pray what David prayed there in Psalm 51? Because something has changed. Because there's a hope that we have now that something is different, that we can know the Lord, that we do not have to be afraid of Him withdrawing His presence or taking His Holy Spirit from us. How can that happen? Well, we'll see what that is in just a few minutes. But it begins with hope being born. It begins with a story of Christmas, of Emmanuel, God with us. And so third, I want us to see this morning in this big picture of scripture, this big picture view of scripture of hope, we, have, we were made for it. That's why we long for it. But we lost in the fall. But third, through the coming of Emmanuel, we can have it in part. This is why we long for hope so much at Christmas. Through the coming of Emmanuel, Jesus, the name for Jesus, God with us, we can have it in part. Turn to Isaiah chapter 7. So let's go backwards just to look in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 7. Because Isaiah 7 is a prophecy, and that is actually where we first see the name Emmanuel appear in Scripture. Often when we think of Emmanuel, we go back to Matthew's Gospel and we see it there. But this is where we first see the idea of Emmanuel, of God with us as far as the name. This is 735 years before Christ was born, roughly, that this was written. 
texts of prophecy. Israel was divided. They had a big threat from this powerful empire called Assyria. Israel was split. This part was written to Judah, the southern kingdom. Let's so look at what God says here to the people of Judah in verse 2 of Isaiah 7. When the house of David, God's people, was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, who was the king, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and my best guess is Shir Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the, on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of those two smoldering stumps of firebrands and the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remelah. Okay, there's lots of names in there. This will be a fun text to do some other time as well. But basically, they had every reason in human strength to be fearful. There's this massive empire of Syria who hates them. Some of the other nations around, including the northern kingdom, were wanting them to come into an alliance before this. But God says, you have an enemy without, but don't be afraid. He reminds them that they're his people. They were the house of David. And he tells them very specifically here in verse 4, God tells this evil king, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. But this king was evil and he rejected hope from the Lord here. God gives them hope, they reject it. So look at what happens in verses 10 through 13, still in Isaiah 7. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, the evil king, and he said this, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Well, here, just context of what's happening. God sees the weak faith of this king, and he says, Look, I'll even give you a sign. Ask for a sign, I'll do it. Let me prove myself to you. And the king acts all pious here and says, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. He's not trusting in, in God. He's trusting in mankind. He already entered an, an alliance with this evil empire. And so he's putting his confidence in men. And so ultimately he realizes what's happening in the context of this to get to the prophecy of Emmanuel is people are rejecting God. The king has rejected God in favor of trusting mankind instead of the God who's offered him hope twice here. In the midst of human rejection of God, in the midst of hopelessness, because they're about to get just beat up by these enemies, God is going to speak ultimate hope. Again, if you're in the place here and your king has just rejected the God who offers you hope twice, you know that other nations are about to come obliterate you, what hope is there? Well, God's going to give them hope. And it's not a vague hope. He's not going to be like, it's going to be okay, I promise. Which, parenthetically, that never gives hope. That's not a very helpful thing to ever say because we don't know what's going to turn out. So it's not a vague hope here. God's going to give them a specific promise of a specific one who will bring ultimate hope. And so look at verse 14. Again, the king has just rejected the hope of the Lord and the trust and help from the Lord. But this is what God says. Therefore, therefore why? Therefore, in light of the man's rejection of God, God's still going to move regardless. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Here's a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 735 years before Jesus came, in the midst of, of, of war and strife, and a king who's rejecting God, God says, you're not going to ask for a sign, but I'm going to give you a sign. Here's where hope is coming. It's going to be a virgin that's going to have a child, and his name will be Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. And friends, God with us is not what often happens at Thanksgiving, where two people are sitting in the room on their smartphones, ignoring one another. That's not the type of presence we're talking about. We're talking about, again, God's intimate presence of him loving, guiding, speaking, walking with, caring, shepherding, involved in every detail of the people's lives. That's what God is promising is coming, and it's coming through 
Emmanuel, God with us, and will come when a virgin conceives and gives birth to a son. Well, how do we know that's speaking of Jesus? Again, we'll get into this this spring, but the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. And so go over to chapter 9. By the way, the rest of chapter 8 we're skipping over is more just about the judgment that's coming. But look at chapter 9 and see if this doesn't start sounding familiar. God goes back throughout the prophet Isaiah to hope. Chapter 9, verse 2. See if this sounds familiar. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has the light shined. Oh, this is starting to sound like a Christmas story. This is 735 years before Jesus is born. Now look down at verse 6. 4. To us a child is born. To us a son is given. Yeah, do you recognize this? It comes from Handel's Messiah. That comes from Handel's Messiah. is based on this. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Friends, this is, again, more details of the prophecy of the coming of Christ. This is the Christmas story. When the world looked absolutely hopeless in Isaiah's time, God says ultimate hope is coming. And that hope is God's presence with us. But how do we know this is definitely talking about Jesus? Now go back to the familiar Christmas story, Matthew chapter 1. Because Matthew is going to quote all this and tell us through inspired scripture here that this, in fact, was a prophecy about Jesus. That when everything looked hopeless, hope was coming. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. And you'll see here that Jesus is this Emmanuel, is this God with us, is the only one who can, through his presence, give us hope. So listen to the very familiar words of what we often think of as a Christmas story. And keep in mind what we just read in Isaiah. Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22, all this, all, what, all the story of Christmas that we think about, the birth of Jesus, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So why is there such a longing for hope at the time of Christmas? Because Christmas reminds us of Emmanuel, of God with us, the only one who can bring to us God's presence. When we can never work our way to God, God came to us. But also, I just want to remind you, the story of Emmanuel, God with us, is not just a story of a baby in a manger. Think about the, the scripture I read during the baptism, Matthew 28, the Great Commission in that. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And surely I am what? With you, when? Always to the ends of the earth. The very part of the Great Commission is the promise of Emmanuel. Though Jesus sent it back to heaven, he's saying, I will still be with you always to the very end of the age. And so Christmas reminds us of Emmanuel. It reminds us in his coming that the, the restoration process has begun. Again, we can never fulfill the law to get to God. So what we saw in Jeremiah 31, what happens? How does the birth of Christ bring this about? When we couldn't fulfill the law, Christ could. And Christ came and he fulfilled the law perfectly on our behalf. 
And when he died on the cross, what happened was not only was all of our sin placed on Christ, but God took all of Christ's righteousness and put it on us. And so now there's no longer this conditional thing. Okay, if you walk and obey me, I'll be with you. Now it's when God looks at us, regardless of what happened yesterday, if we are in Christ, when God looks at us, he doesn't see us. He sees Christ's righteousness. And therefore, we can have Emmanuel, God, with us, not based on our obedience, not based on our moralism. It's not us trying to fulfill the law to hope that God will be pleased so we can, so we can sit down and walk alongside him. What Christ did in, the, in coming as a baby, fulfilling the law perfectly, never sinning, which is essential for this, he was able to die as our substitute so that all of our sin went to him and all of his righteousness came to us. And we now stand clothed in his righteousness, forgiven. And when God sees us right now, regardless of what's happened in the last 24 hours, God sees Christ's righteousness. And we can be in relationship with him and experience him as Emmanuel, God, with us. But notice I said in this that we have the coming of Emmanuel. We can have his presence in part. Maybe that gave some of you pause, you know, when we think about why we have his presence in part. Let's think back to those opening things I talked about. If you're in the car and you know that hope is on the way, that hope isn't fully realized until the person is there with you. If, you have the, if you're that military family, you're longing for that son or daughter or your spouse to come back. There's hope in that. And you can still even talk to them on the phone and Skype, but there's something about when you see them face to face that that hope is fully realized. Or again, the wedding day, there's hope. You can even enjoy time together, but when you get married and you stand there at the altar, you say, I do, that hope is Realize there's something about seeing each other face to face. So I said through the coming of Emmanuel, we can have it in part because the fourth part of this idea of hope from the scripture is that when Christ returns, what we have in part now, we will have in full then. Because friends, there's more to knowing his presence than any of us can experience in this life. And that's part of what Advent is all about is the expectation of Christ's return. So the fourth thing is when Christ returns, we will have it in full. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the famous love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Because there's an amazing verse stuck in the middle of what we often read at weddings, right? I think for a lot of times 1 Corinthians 13 is just a a wedding recitation for us. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12. Again, remember we have God's presence now, but we'll have it more in full in the future. Verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then... Face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So when it says, I see in a mirror dimly, don't think about your current bathroom mirror. Unless you think, like us have young kids and you think about your bathroom mirror, where it's really foggy with all the toothpaste that's splattered everywhere. That might be the only way this imagery would work. At this time, when Paul's writing this to the people in Corinth, mirrors were not like mirrors are today. It's more, think of like, if you pick up a tarnished old pot that's been way under your stove for a long time. You pull it out, you can kind of see a little tainted reflection there. That's what mirrors were like at the time. They were pieces of metal that they tried to polish, but it looked more like a tarnished pot. And so your image was a little bit distorted. You can still see, like if I hold up a tarnished pot, my kids do this sometimes, I look at a pot, I can see myself in the pot, you know. There's a reflection there you can see, but it's not the same as seeing the person face to face. For those of you who wear glasses or have had to have eye surgery, what was it like when you finally got glasses for the first time? I remember when I, I wore contacts most of the time. You'll see me occasionally in glasses. But when I was 15, I had to get glasses so I could drive to pass the vision test. Friends, the first time I put on glasses, I was overwhelmed. 
Because I look down and I'm like, there's texture in the carpet I have never seen. I could look at trees and there were leaves. It wasn't like a green blur. Like there was like actual leaves up there. And like it was really almost a sensory overload because there was clarity of vision that I had never seen before. It wasn't I couldn't see previously, but I saw with a clarity I couldn't have seen any time previously in my life. Those of you who wear glasses or have had eye problems will know what I'm talking about in that. Friends, that's just a glimpse of what it's going to be like when we see Christ face to face. Yes, we can know his presence now because of Christmas, because Emmanuel has come, because our sins are forgiven, because of what Christ has done. Us receiving Christ's righteousness, God can look at us and relate to us now. We can be in relationship with God now. Yes, but it's only in part. The day is coming, friends, that we see him face to face, not looking in a mirror in that rusty old pot when we see him with clear 2020 vision. Second Corinthians 3.18 describes us seeing him with unveiled faces. And friends, then and only then will our hope truly be satisfied because then our hope is fulfilled at his presence. So one last text as we wrap up this morning. I want you to go to the book of Revelation. We started way back in Genesis 1. We're going to end in Revelation 21 today, okay? Revelation 21. This is a description of what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be like. Revelation chapter 21. We're going to start back in verse 1. Here's what's described for us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Friends, a day is coming soon when the groaning of creation is over, when Christ returns, not as a baby in a manger, but as a reigning, ruling king. And when he does, what's going to happen? Verse 4, he's going to wipe away every tear. Death is done away with. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Man, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But that's not what's the best part of this. Verse 3 is what's the best part, more so than verse 4. Verse 3, what's going to happen that day? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his his people and God himself will be with them. That God himself will be Emmanuel. He will be with them as their God. The greatest blessing is God's presence. Friends, we can't return to the garden, but we can't anticipate the day when Christ comes back. And we get to see him with unveiled faces and walk with him and talk with him. So back to the original question. Why is there such a longing for hope of God's presence during the Christmas season? Well, I hope you can better answer that now because it's Christmas is about all about Emmanuel. God coming with us. We were made for God's presence. There's a longing in our hearts, a God-shaped void in our hearts because we were made to know God. And we long for that. We, we deep down want what Adam and Eve had. But we can't go back to the garden because the sin, because our sin is separated from God, has broken our relationship with him. And no matter how hard we work, how hard we try, we can't work enough to, to ever earn God's presence. We can't be holy enough to merit God's presence because we will always have sin in our lives. And so when we can't get to God, God comes to us and hope is born. God begins a story of reconciliation in the Christmas story. He's making a way for us to experience him. But there's more that we can experience in part now. Because, friends, either if Christ comes back first or if first we close our eyes and go and die first, 
if we're in Christ, which everyone happens for us, doesn't really matter. Is whenever we die or if Christ comes back first, we see him face to face with unveiled face. We get to look in the face of our creator and talk with him and relate to him in full like it would have been in the garden. And in Revelation 21, that will be the experience of the new heavens and the new earth for all of us for all eternity, that his dwelling will be with us. And so, friends, this Christmas season, can I challenge myself and all of us to pause from the busyness and to remember this is the story of hope, of the hope that we were made for that was lost in the fall, but the hope that we begin to experience in part because of Christ coming as Emmanuel. Let's remember that Christ is coming again, and let's anticipate this Advent season, his second coming, and we will have his presence in full. So I pray this Christmas, every time you see a little nativity set, you see a baby in a manger, hear a cheesy song on the radio, Think about some Christmas story. Go to a Christmas party. Be shopping for Christmas gifts. That throughout all these things that happen this season that can distract us. I mean, instead of those distractions, be grace gifts from God. To remind us this season is all about Emmanuel. God with us. And may it make us long to know him more now. And long to see him face to face in the future. One thing that some people do to help during the season to keep that focus is doing Advent readings. You know, we're doing the four Sundays of Advent. But there's devotionals out there, 25 days, just a short devotional every day uh, to help you or your family think about what Advent is all about and to pause in the business of it. It takes two or three minutes a day. There's Advent calendars, but there's also Advent devotionals. There's a great one from John Piper on Advent on indestructible joy, and it's available for free. And so I am going to email that to everyone in the congregation this afternoon. No pressure, but if you and your family want a free resource of a devotional to work through, this Christmas season, just so you have something each day to think about from Scripture, what Advent is all about, what Emmanuel God was all about, I'm going to email that to you. Now, for some of you who would rather not be ebook people and don't want to have a PDF file or an ebook of it, we do have 15 copies that will be in the office this week. They're not here yet. They're arriving tomorrow. So if you'd like a physical copy of this devotional book for you and your family, they're yours free if you like it. Just call Aaron tomorrow, get your name on the list for it, or just stop by Tuesday or Wednesday or Wednesday night and pick it up. But there, there will be 15 copies. So I'm going to email all of you this devotional book this afternoon, but there's also copies in the office if you are a paper and pen person who want to mark it up and read it, read it on paper as well. Just know that's a resource. No pressure if you have other ways you go about it, but I just want to have a tool in your hands to help you with that. So again, as we come to Christmas season, whether you use that devotional or not, can I again challenge you? Remember, this is all about Emmanuel. It's not about the parties, though they're not bad. It's not about the gift giving, though that's not bad. It's not about all the trips and the things that happen or time off from work. The season of God with us. And let's make sure we're taking time to experience his presence now in this season, all the while longing for what's to come in the future. So would you pray with me? Father God, we are grateful for this Christmas season. God, we are grateful that the story that we are so familiar with, that we've heard since childhood, God, we, we, we're thankful for that story. And we ask that we might see with fresh eyes this Christmas season. God, would you give us grace to not get so busy with the things that can distract us that we will miss the wonder that you are making way for our hope to be satisfied in the presence of Christ? God, would you stir our hearts afresh with a longing to know you as best we can know you in this earthly life? Would you stir our hearts afresh with the longings, oh God, for that day when we see you face to face? And Lord, may you fill our hearts to overflowing with thankfulness this Christmas season. I mean, this is the story of our own hopelessness. 
God, the, the fact that Christ came as a baby in the manger was because there was absolutely nothing we could do to get to you, oh God. And so God, I pray that when we see the nativities, when we think about the story of Lord Jesus as you as a baby in the manger, that we wouldn't miss the wonder of that as well as the humbling part of that, that we could never get to you. Therefore, you did the only thing that could be done. That was come to rescue us. So God, this Christmas season, would you fill our hearts with thankfulness, fill our hearts with gratitude, fill our hearts with wonder anew on the truth of Emmanuel, God with us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, can I invite you to stand? We're going to sing and close, and we're basically singing the gospel as we close, because we're singing Christ alone. And let the words of this song, this modern hymn, cause you to marvel that Christ is the one who came, took on all of our sin, and gave us all of his righteousness that we might know him.